Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Today I have a conversation with Michael Harden, who is the author of How Jesus Read His Bible. He is the executive director of Preaching Peace. It's a nonprofit-based organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He has also written extensively on Rene Girard, and we discussed Girard, and also his book, The Jesus-Driven Life, which was written to international acclaim. And so, hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm here this morning with Michael Harden, and Michael, I'm so glad you're you're in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, sir. I'm in eastern Pennsylvania, but in Lancaster. Is that your original home? Oh, no, no. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, went to school in Chicago, ended up in uh, Long Island, New York, just outside of Queens for 18 years, and then we moved here to Lancaster in 2005. We love it here. It's wonderful. Well, I was introduced to your work uh, by Tim, who had taken a class with me uh, up in Canada. Uh-huh. I've been finding it very fascinating. I was just reading your uh, book on Rene Girard. Okay. It, would you say that is a key influence? Rene was a key influence, um, not the first. Uh, that would be the tandem of Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then would come Rene, and then last in the line of influences would come an Apache shaman uh, we just call Grandfather. So, yeah, one of one of three major influences in my life, but, but for sure. And as I understand it, you began life in uh, Catholicism. Yes. And then shifted to a kind of dispensational fundamentalism. Could you kind of describe how that journey unfolded? A, a young teenager in the early 1970s in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm uh, a bit of a rebel, and so I become a little hippie, and those were great years to be living in the Bay Area. Tur- turbulent, to be sure, but great years. And I don't know, sometimes uh, when I was uh, eight, just after I was 18 years old, um, I had a particularly disturbing nightmare one night. And I remember telling my mother I needed to see a priest. And she said, she said, hey, they're all in bed. Well, I forgot about it the next day. But two weeks later, this fundamentalist Baptist church needed a drummer. And they would pay me. And I took the gig for the money. And they converted me. As uh, people familiar with that. Prophets are all healthy to live with. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but, they, but, but that led right away into the Jesus movement. Yeah, yeah. And, yep, and, and it was beautiful. We had some great experiences in the Jesus movement, um, living in community and those kinds of things with a group called Church in the Park back in Modesto, California. It was a wonderful time. I'm guessing you and I are must be a. Uh, I'm 64 as of yesterday. I'm guessing that we're following a similar timeline. We are following on a very similar timeline, sir. I suppose you remember Larry Norman. Oh yes, my. In fact, I didn't know about Christian rock, but my wife. Uh, they used to come to the church she was at and play. Uh, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, oh, Second Chapter of Acts, all those people. <laughs> so we also started a little Christian commune, and I remember Larry Norman coming, and it must be that generation. And the, the I was sort of on the fringes of the whole uh, Jesus people movement. I, I get where you're coming from. I'm curious a, a little bit that in your recent embrace of, I would call it a kind of reworking from a kind of contractual understanding to, or maybe maybe that's a wrong characterization of what you're doing, to a more of a nonviolent Christianity. And I just did a, a podcast with Douglas Campbell, whom, with whom I think you're familiar. <laughs> I, I, I would think so. Okay. And I, I love Doug. I love Doug. Yeah. I think he's the most important theological thinker alive on the planet right now. I am uh, uh, tending to agree, but how would would you line up with what he's doing? Well, the first thing is um, I was able to, I mean, obviously with the help of the pioneers in uh, mimetic theory, biblical studies, like Father Raymond Schwager and James Allison, 
uh, and some of these other folks, I was able to pioneer and develop a Protestant uh, approach to biblical hermeneutics and uh, and then eventually uh, epistemology and these kinds of things. The, the, the challenge has been Paul. And in, I believe it was 2009, Jonathan, my friend Jonathan Sutter brought back the deliverance of God from the AAR meeting. He said, Michael, I saw mm-hmm. this, Erdman's is publishing it. I know you're going to like it. And I did. I, it took me three days to read that thing. And I, I mean, I was spending 12-hour, 13-hour days. I read it cover to cover. I loved it. I fell in love with it. It was like, it was like I could make sense now of Romans. And I began just applying Campbell's research methodologies to Paul Went and read Framing Paul, went very, very carefully through that book. It, I've done that book at least three times. Uh, and then a number of his essays where he deals with the theological, uh, epistemological issues uh, in that fine volume edited by Chris Tilling on uh, Old and New Perspectives in Paul or something. I forget the exact title. But I, I realized that my love for Karl Barth and Doug's love for Karl Barth both put us on the exact same page because we both read Barth the same way. Uh-huh. And that's very important because there are many ways to read Karl Barth, many schools of thought, and Doug and I serendipitously both read through the same lens. And that's the lens of the Torrance brothers, the Scottish tradition, as it were. Uh-huh. So there was that connection. And then I realized that with Bob Harrington Kelly's work on Paul, I could now make all the connections I needed to make with regard to understanding and interpreting the Apostle Paul in terms of mimetic theory. It all, all the pieces of the puzzle came together in an extraordinary way. So that's my little tale. That does tie in. I mean, uh, the, the picture of Paul of a kind of corporate damnation and salvation, first in Adam and, and, and then in the second Adam, you, you know, you can re- understand that through Gerard's mimetic theory that we have one model in the first Adam and then a second model uh, in Christ. That um, you, I, I guess that you call it a mimetic realism. That's the term that Bob Hamilton Kelly came up with. Bob was um, an important mentor in my life, and he preferred to call it realism rather than theory. Because it has really been validated in its uh, as a tool uh, for understanding. If you think of, if you use it heuristically rather than seeing it as a thing in itself, it's just it's a it's a tool, and it's been validated in so many disciplines uh, in both the human sciences as well as the physical and the biological sciences, and now most intriguingly. Uh, by Pablo Bandera in the discipline of quantum mechanics. There is a realistic basis to this. That, that is, there is something mimetic about the universe. I mean, I've spent the last couple of years studying markets and uh, economics. That's been my primary interest for this last two years. And the markets are purely mimetic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, for example, two days ago, there's, there's talk of recession the last few weeks. Talk, talk, talk. And then a couple of Global indicators contract. The Dow drops third day in a row. Boom, boom, boom. It's fear. It's that, and you have the VIX index measures fear and greed. And what's moving the markets? It's all mimetic. Mm-hmm. You know, right, right. <laughs> how real does it have to get before somebody goes? This is not really theory anymore. This is like the real deal. Right, right. And so, I mean, given given Gerard and the notion of uh, the, a mimetic realism. I, I think that it does give you, and, and I feel this in your work, I think that in a kind of contractual understanding or in an, an understanding uh, where we would presume to be part of the in-group with a kind of inside track taking possession of Christ, maybe, uh, or even in the way that Paul describes, that in and through the law that in some way we would gain life that we kind of tend to reduce these things too to an object to be obtained uh creating oh undoubtedly undoubtedly in other words the religion uh, a christianity gone bad just reduplicates uh, a kind of mimetic rivalry 
<laughs> yes, I, and, and you see this being played out right now in Protestant Christianity in America. Um, the next book I have coming out from Whippenstock, and I, th I think they're trying to get it ready for the AAR meeting in November, is called Knowing God? Question mark, and the subtitle is Consumer Christianity and the Gospel of Jesus. I'm essentially arguing that American Protestant religion uh, I mean, I, I have a hard time even calling it Christianity. It, this is, it has nothing to do with the gospel, but, you know, and I am indicting the entire phenomenon from fundamentalist to liberal progressive. Mm -hmm. I have turned the Christian faith tradition into little more than um, uh, yelling a human being in a loud voice when they speak of God. Yeah. That's all they've done, and it's uh, it's 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 a scathing piece. I, I get that. It's, I get that it's scathing. The Chris Tilling wrote the foreword, but that's the reality we're in right now in the United States of America hmm. with what is called Christianity. It has nothing to do with the gospel. It's just a form of Constantinianism in American dress. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm to the choir, I know. That what we call Christianity, you know, this is sort of Kierkegaard's point, that there is the sense in that Christ does, in the sense of it going bad, releases the demonic. In other words, once you, once you perverted the gospel, there's nowhere to turn. You don't have a gospel to turn to. And that may be what we're what we're seeing. I don't know. Oh, I I think that's almost precisely what we're seeing. But the good news is that even and I mean when I look out across the disciplines of theology and New Testament studies, I really don't see much out there that to me feels like real Christian theology. It's all of it. And again, I want to be careful. I'll, I'll limit my remarks to just. Protestant Christianity in America, but I don't see any real theological thinking going on. I see everybody still stuck in the same box of this sacrificial paradigm that requires an economy of exchange and fails to understand grace. So it, it is interesting to see. A kind of apocalyptic uh, understanding as over again uh, Douglas Campbell's category. Oh, I'm I'm intensely apocalyptic, mate. Probably far too much for the average person. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on, on both a realistic scale of what's happening in the in uh, in the planet today, I mean, I am intensely apocalyptic. But uh, all human oriented, all anthropological, you know that kind of thing. With regard to that, here's the key. When the human species speaks about God, it lies. It automatically lies. It can't do anything but lie. That's our problem as humans. We're idol makers. We are idol makers. So, so in order for God to speak, God has to be utterly free to speak in any way God desires to speak no matter how we may want it to play out. And that means that the event of God speaking is always going to be catastrophically apocalyptic to us because it's decimating our views of God. Mm -hmm. God has to decimate our idols. The, the way that I, I see this working out in Scripture is the shift uh, between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Oh, yes. That in Romans 7, you have the law, you have a picture of human interiority. Maybe you have a picture of the universal human condition. I don't know if you're familiar with Slavoj Zizek and Lacanian theory. Oh, I, I have been spat on by, by Zizek. I've, it's an honor. <laughs> I've been that close to him, so yes, I've read some of his work, yes. My work has focused on that, and I, I just feel like that, I mean, what Zizek would say is that a Lacanian theory then has simply captured what Paul is doing, particularly in Romans 7. And of course, what he's describing is an atheistic Marxist materialism. You know, he calls himself a Pauline materialist. But nonetheless, I think he's captured the state of 
what it is to be human outside of Christ. Uh, you know, for him, that's as far as it goes. You can manipulate that. But it is, in other words, in Lacanian theory, it does revolve around human language. If you just take Paul's notion of the law and you understand, well, what, what that means in Lacanian theory is language. And I notice in your own theory that you also discussed in the role of language. The way you state it, I, I want to question you on this. Okay. And that is, is the problem language or law, or is it in fact our orientation to language and law? Let me see if I can frame, frame how I want to do this, because one of the things that has plagued me for my entire research career is that I often feel like the wrong questions are being asked, and so I choose to ask a whole different set of questions. And then if the research bears it out, then that ends up being part of the stuff. So here's what, what I've done with this is to ask, when we take categories like Torah, and I don't really like the word law, but let's just take the category Torah, instruction in Judaism. Mm -hmm. Now, is Paul's argument that there's a problem with the Torah itself, just as a thing in itself, a, you know, that, that Kantian Dinganzik, is it in and of itself something, something wrong with it? Paul says more than law is holy, just, and good. Mm -hmm. The problem is, me as the reader or the interpreter, I cannot interpret this law properly. All it does is inflame desire in me, which creates covetousness, which creates problems. That's all it manages to do. So even though I'm told that Torah is a solution, it's not really a solution. That's Paul's argument. But the problem isn't with Torah. The problem is with me. And so in that Romans 7 section, and I forget where I read this. I used for a long time, I thought it was Ben Witherington, but it's not. But I, I read an interesting piece where the first part of Romans 7 is a bit of a, and I'll use the term, Targamic Midrash on Adam, and the second uh, part of Romans 7 on Cain. Hmm. And of course, we remember that sin is the croucher at the door in Genesis 4. Well, it has that same function. What was Cain's problem? Is If you're reading it this way, it's covetousness. And you begin to see the pieces fit together, and you go, oh, what we're looking at here is a fundamental anthropology, and Paul is asking a whole different question. The problem is not whether the law is true or false. Mm -hmm. The problem is the law could be as true as you want it to be, but it is always going to be false because of, of the interpreter. Right, right. And so you could also say the same thing in a Lacanian understanding. The problem is not language, or law per se, but it is in fact the uh, imagining that we can extract life from law, from language. And the reason that it, once, you, once you use the term language, this just flattens out so that we're now talking about philosophy, we're talking about you know, psychology, we're just talking about the human condition. Oh, wow, look what happened in linguistics. Once they removed philology from linguistics and, and attached it to philosophy, you talk about human culture sucking something dry. We sucked linguistics dry, so we have no more meaning. Postmodernism is all about no meaning. Right. Because we, we, we wrenched it from its roots in philology. And, and in a sense, then, the, the whole notion uh, of the Wittgensteinian critique that we can use language to ascend to the heavens. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I know, I know Wittgenstein is wonderful there, and a co-conspirator with Bart on that score. Yeah, and so the problem, again, is not, oh, the language, but what we would do with it. Precisely, and because, because we have a, a, a distorted hermeneutical lens, this is the problem. And Jesus, the only time I can remember that Jesus addresses hermeneutics um, and I take the saying to be authentic, is when he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Mm -hmm. And I've puzzled over that, over that for a long time because it is a, par a bit of a parable. But if that, if, the, if that which I claim reveals things to me, that is my hermeneutic, if it's dark, if it's broken, and I don't even know that it's dark. I think that it's light. How great a darkness I'm in. You're deceived. You find yourself in the midst. In other words, the very structure of 
your understanding of reality follows the contour of a primordial deception. Absolutely. And that's and that's it. That's Paul, and but that's also then that taps into I think a whole Girardian understanding at the same time. It does. In the sense that the thing that is always taking place in a lie and in a Lacanian understanding is an agonistic struggle in which sacrifice is the economy, not just in culture, not just in religion, but in the human psyche. This is a, this is Freudian understanding that the primary orientation, uh, you know, Freud began thinking that humans were oriented by sadism and then changed his mind that it was actually masochism, that there was an inward sacrificial economy taking place between the superego and the ego. If you want to put that in Pauline terms, between the eye of the mind, the, you know, the law uh, of the mind and the law of the flesh. Well, it's Paul, would, Paul, Paul would use the, the two yetzers, the yetzer hara, the, good, uh, the evil yetzer, and the yetzer hatov, the good yetzer, the desires, the evil impulse, the good impulse, like the medieval paintings of the little devil and the little angel on the, each shoulder kind of thing. But you're, all this is spot on. All this is, I'm just was making a connection. Yeah, yeah. And so, and of course, uh, Gerard is also reading Freud. It's in a kind of revisionist understanding. Uh, rightly so, you know, that it's uh, the Oedipal, Oedipus complex is not a sexual orientation, but it, it is then this kind of natural sacrificial understanding. Right. I think once you tap into that, that the human psyche, human culture, the structure of human personality is given over to a kind of masochistic sacrifice. The very logic of this thing has its in a, in, in our in the grip, and I think this is what Paul, when he describes the deception, when Jesus is describing the darkness, that's the darkness that we cannot extract ourselves from and that Christ is breaking into. And so when he says, that's what is. the truth then is over and against that law. That's right. That's what makes it apocalyptic, and that's why when we hear it, we have to reject it. We have to reject it, and since we're morally obligated to reject it, because it doesn't fit any of our categories. Let me uh, kind of ground our conversation. We're taking flight here, and it's wonderful and joyful. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I hope we're not losing anybody. Let me let me ask you a very uh, a very basic question. And that is that I noticed in, in uh, your, is it the Jesus driven life? I mean, the very title of the book is over and against, I think, a Christianity that captured a lot of people in the purpose driven life. Mm -hmm. Run down that contrast. I had the uh, strange opportunity to be invited uh, in 2006 out to Saddleback Church for some event, and it was paid for, so I went. And there I met Rick Warren, and I listened for two days as they did their whole thing. And I came back, and I wrote uh, kind of a summary review of my experience. And at the end of it, I said, I know what the purpose-driven life looks like, but I wonder what the Jesus-driven life looks like. And then eventually I would uh, turn that into the book. My basic argument is that Rick Warren, evangelical Christianity, um, do not follow Jesus of Nazareth. They have all the language about having a personal relationship, but their God is completely impersonal and nothing other than the other ancient gods that have always existed. And all they're trying to do is contain the ancient gods from erupting. So if you're familiar with that wonderful uh, parody of the horror genre, The Cabin in the Woods, uh, it's all about it's all about governments and science trying to contain the old gods with sacrifice. Well, this is the that's the only thing that Warren and the purpose-driven life is able to do, 
is justify this entire evangelical sacrificial mechanism, which includes putting the sacrificial nonsense into people's software in their brains so that they actually think destructive types of thoughts about themselves and God and others. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I see the evangelicals as tremendously culpable uh, when it comes to the issues that plague uh, the world. I really do. Uh, not just on, I mean, you could go the Weber thesis about Calvinism and capitalism. You could do all kinds of things, but the, the, there's a burden to be laid at, at the Protestant door. Mm -hmm. That it's compounding the human sickness. It is totally compounding it. It is not a solution. It is a problem. And it is, again, the sacrificial economy. It's the notion of the Janus face God is the way you, you often picture it. Run, run down what you mean uh, by a Janus faced God. Yeah, Janus face, Janus face God is, uh, is kind of like that person that most of us have known at some point in our lives or another that drinks too much. When they're not drinking or when they're drinking too much, they're holy hell to live with. And when they're drinking just the right amount, they're happy, happy, and they're manageable. That kind of a God is uh, the Janus face God. He smiles. Or he frowns, or but you never know what you're going to get with that kind of God. You're just stuck hoping for the best. Kind of an abusive father. That, yeah, that's not Jesus' father. That That's just the old God of Persian Zoroastrianism. That God has been around with us for a long time. That is not the God of the gospel. And the question then, is it that God that is captured when we talk about divine apathia, apophaticism, is, is it the wrong God? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you, you could never apply apatheia in that classic Greek sense like the second century fathers did to, to the Father. You couldn't do that because the Father is active in the reconciliatory process. God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. How? By answering the prayers of Jesus, where Jesus separates action from intention in the atonement. 2,000 years before Freud, Jesus is there, as Gerard notes, pointing out that what we're dealing with here is something non-conscious. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is, this is absolutely stunning. That it's God like they've never seen him before. Or conceived or anything else. And that's what Douglas Campbell and others mean when they say apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. it, it, it disrupts the categories. Changes the epistemology. Which must relate then to how we read Scripture and what we think of Scripture. Yeah, that's for certain. If you think of it this way, those of us in the West were trained to start with epistemology and then we move to hermeneutics. Okay, so what if you have an epistemology that is patently absurd, like Christ crucified, and all the implications of that? Well, that changes everything. And then once you start thinking down that, that road, if you're thinking properly, you're not going to interpret the narrative of the crucifixion through a sacrificial lens, but precisely through what it is. It is a lens by which sacrifice is finally understood and thus rendered powerless. And that's Gerard's reading of the of the Old Testament. Um, and of the New Testament. Again, for, for Gerard... Uh, and well, for myself, and I think for Rene too. I mean, I've had enough conversations with Rene to know he does have a canon within the canon, and that's the Gospels, and he does have a canon within the Gospels, and that's the Passion narrative. So, um, but I think it's fair to say, you know, Rene would recognize that you have the, the, the disjuncture has always been between the two testaments. That's the false disjuncture proposed by the early church who wanted to see the apostolic literature superior to other literature. I think what you have to recognize is that both religion and revelation run through both testaments, and it's shot through. So in the New Testament, I would say you have Mark, Luke, the Johannine Epistles, and the Johannine Gospel, Acts, of course, included with Luke. Uh, you have the ten authentic Pauline letters. Everything else after that is sacrificial. Matthew... The pastorals were already sacrificial. They've already started to marginalize women in a bad way. Um, uh, the book of Revelation, the gospel of Matthew turns Jesus into, uh, you know, a Pharisee, a law-abiding Pharisee, uh, and pro-sacrifice in many ways. 
Um, in fact, it's the Gospel of Matthew that Miroslav Wolf is really following in his book Exclusion and Embrace, where he has that eschatological deferral of violence. God is still violent, but he gets to be violent at the right time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that's where we see that. But but you have the book of Revelation, Epistle of Jude, First and Second Peter, all sacrificial, man. And if you, if you don't recognize that, it's like, well, how are you going to read any of the rest of Scripture? And I was always curious whether Gerard had followed this or if he had changed his mind. And that is that there is a rereading, you know, that he obviously does a rereading of the, the stories of the Old Testament, but there is also an effort to reread or to understand the temple sacrifices as a counter-religion to the pagan religions uh, which surround Israel. And that while it does in some way accommodate the need for human sacrifice, it is simultaneously a reversal of that religion and a counter to the sacrificial mode, not of sacrificing the other, but in fact of laying down the life, your own life for the other, culminating then you know, in the, the atonement, atonement sacrifice, the two goat sacrifice, and then picturing what is going to ha- take place in Christ. There was a question in there. I was following it, but what's the question? Or was it just the comment, just the observation? I'm curious if Gerard, in other words, I know that early on he just, he said, well, the sacrifices in the Old Testament are more of the same. Uh-huh. He never moved from that. What he did do is he underwent a transformation in his both understanding of sacrifice as well as his use of the word. Uh, things hidden from the foundation of the world. As he's writing that, Father Raymond Schwager is writing uh, Must There Be Scapegoats in German. And they're having a correspondence. And Father Schwager is able to begin moving Rene away from that fairly negative definition of sacrifice that you find in Violence in the Sacred, which was published in 1972, to a more amenable understanding of sacrifice within the uh, context of uh, cultural anthropology, as well as the scriptures. But Rene wouldn't really begin changing his thinking on this until the early 90s, I think when he was reading Shakespeare, and that's when he realized that sacrifice is necessary. The human species cannot exist without it. It's a protective mechanism. That doesn't mean that it isn't part of empire. That doesn't mean that it isn't colonialist. That doesn't mean that it isn't patriarchal and all these things that have done so much damage. But what it does mean is that it has a very important function, and if we don't have something to replace it when we try to dismantle it or take it down or take it away, holy hell will break loose. That's the apocalypse. What's happened for Rene and his understanding of the Holy Spirit, which is in the last chapter of his book on the scapegoat, is that for 2,000 years the gospel has been penetrating human culture. In, in good ways. And it's this penetration that is finally now creating the thinking and the ideas that are literally breaking down religion and culture. So, for example, uh, modern science is impossible without Christian epistemological changes that took place in the 3rd and 4th centuries. And that's this is a thesis of Tom Torrance. Well, and others. So you start looking at this and going, Christianity is responsible for the Enlightenment. How cool is that? Mm. (laughs) You know? know? It's like like awesome, but then it's also responsible for postmodernism. Oh, absolutely. Because it's it's basically saying there's no meaning in any of this. And so I think we're being kind of, uh, we're in a stream, as it were, and we're, we're, we're headed along toward a major, major change in the way we do this thing called human species over the next 20, 25 years. I, I just don't think our children and grandchildren are going to look back and they wouldn't even recognize the world we live in right now. Would you describe it as a different orientation to our relationship, to our how we apprehend truth and our relationship to that truth. I think that will be part of it. I I think the bigger part's going to be 
an awareness that, and it's going to be global, that the way we're doing this is all wrong. And I'm hoping that in the midst of this, there are systems that are either being set up non-consciously, of course, or perhaps even consciously, that will take us through some very, very serious challenges. I mean, we really do face some very serious challenges. Specifically? Uh, economic, political, geopolitical, but particularly economic. I think I think we're, we are just now uh, entering into the, the economists on Bloomberg News uh, talk about the stall speed of an aircraft, how slow can something go before it finally is no longer stalling, but it's dropping. Well, we went from stalling yesterday to dropping today, and just a, an awareness: the global economy is 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 outgrown itself. There's 16 trillion of unsecured debt. The United States pays 104 percent of its GDP now for its debt. The Fed can't, and, and and banks in Europe are having a hard time because we're in negative interest rate territory in Europe, and the Fed is doggone close to it at two percent. I mean, there's so many things happening in the world globally, plus the trade wars, plus the currency wars. The current system now is there's just literally warehouses with trillions and trillions and trillions of U.S. dollars on pallets. Our economy is the gold standard, you know. Well, holy cow, when that, as soon as that dollar starts to drop, and it's going to start, and it's going to start happening. That's mm-hmm. something, A, Mr. Trump loves, because you want to pay off your debts with a weak dollar. But it is going to absolutely take America out of the race for uh, its, its global dominance. This is what everybody's been waiting for. This is the moment empire collapses. And it's not what you want to see because it won't be pretty. But it will be real. <laughs> I'm curious your take on the significance of Donald Trump in the this thing that you're picturing being played out. If you take somebody like Noam Chomsky and he light, lines up just the, if you had to judge according to the Nuremberg War Crime Trials, the presidents in the post-war period, his judgment is they would all be hung. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that now that we have drones, now that now that we have the the ability just to obliterate people off the planet with uh, little drones, I don't know, mate. That that's that's a legal question. I there's no way in hell a politician can follow Jesus and have either legal authority or legislative authority to push a button. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could say you're a follower of Jesus if that's part of your job description. The, the whole evangelical enchantment with Trump, I mean, it is, it is a strange phenomena that just sort of is, a, a, to my mind, a signaling of the emptiness of the religion. Beyond that, do you find on a scale of evil where to put him? Because what he is is just obvious. There's no deception there it's it's there for everyone to see are you attaching a peculiar evil to him me no um it, his his evil is actually quite banal I, I mean it's he's just greedy that's he's just a greedy son of a bitch but but what we look at with donald trump is donald just wants his daddy's approval that's all this is all about that's all this is all about donald's looking for daddy's approval and, and daddy's dead so he thinks if he can get all of America, anybody that focuses on one person not liking them when a thousand people like them, yeah, <laughs> dealing with a little bit of a disorder here. Yeah, let me shift a bit. You refer to God as Abba, yes, and you say that that Abba then is not the Janus face God. Right. And, and what I would wonder is, how do we know when we're dealing with Abba and when we're not? Well, it's you're only ever dealing with Abba. But you you have to tr- here's where trust comes in. Again, another important piece of the Campbell uh, thing here is that Campbell had takes a specific side in what's the Pistis Christu debate: faith of Christ, faith in Christ, object of genitive, subject of genitive, all that. Right, right. Okay, <clears throat> and with Doug, I take this to be the faithfulness of Christ. Okay, mm-hmm. so with Abba, with, with Papa, I trust when I pray that I am speaking only to Papa 
And I went through a period where when this first started happening, um, I would say, okay, look, here's the way it's going to work. If you want me to, to really trust you and pray to you like that, you got to understand, I've, I view you wrong. I have wrong ideas about you. I get all this. I get all this. But I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to pray that when I speak, you are the heart that hears. And I, that's allowed that now it's just, now I know, I know that my papa is the creator of the universe. It's all good. Um, I don't have a need for a God concept. Uh-huh. So if somebody asked Carl Jung, do you believe in God? He said, I don't believe, I know. And so the whole uh, objectified, you know, this is sort of, I don't know if you followed the recent thing with David Bentley Hart and his depiction of universalism. Well, well let me ask you, have you and where you stand on uh, that? No, I haven't. I, I really have a lot of admiration for what uh, David Bentley Hart does. Um, so I would be curious to know where he's going with it, just because I, again, have a lot of respect for him. In terms of universalism, I mean, I thought I made where I would get pretty clear in the movie Hellbound, but I would say it's been tampered, not tampered, tempered a bit. I don't, here's how I, here's how I think when we are misapproaching, again, the question of fell from the wrong perspective, because we automatically assume the definition of person. So we say this person's going to heaven, that person's going to hell. This is where the Native American shamanic training has become very important to me these 17 years. And I've learned that the ego, my ego, that conscious piece I have of myself, is just one of many multiple selves. And all the other parts of me work fine. They're all healed. They're all redeemed. They work just fine. It's just my ego that's broken. And so I'm beginning to think that, in fact, everybody has most of themselves going uh, through the pearly gates, as it were. But there will be those whose egos don't make it. I don't know. I'm playing around with ideas these days. Well, the depiction in Paul, of course, is that the word ego is from the Greek word for I. I, mm -hmm. And he says that I have been crucified. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. And if you take a Lacanian understanding of what he's depicting there, Lacan calls the I, the ego, the imaginary. That is that it is in a Freudian understanding a positing of an object, a thing. And that our pursuit, you know, the child sees itself in the mirror. And this is Freud's day of babysitting. And the child, his grandson, sees himself for the first time and enters the same period he enters in, begins to speak. He uses language. And so the two things come together. He identifies the object in the mirror as I, as me. And, of course, what Freud is saying, yeah, but it's a misconception because the object in the mirror, or what Freud will call the bodily ego, or I think what Paul is his calling the I that could be crucified is in the language of Lacan. You know, he changes the word ego to imaginary. It's that is the primordial deception is to imagine that that object, that thing, that thing that is, you know, it is the word from which in the Hebrew and then in the Greek, we get Selim, Demuth, idol. Uh -huh. That is that we are idol makers because we have conceived of ourselves in that very form, that we have become the image makers. And the thing that is undone in Christ with the dissolution of the ego, it does no harm to the self. I mean, the, the I that has been crucified is not truly the self, but is that false image that is undone at the center of a false dynamic between the law of the mind and the law of the flesh. That dynamic is undone in Christ. So that in my understanding, the very notion of the survival of the ego it is uh, part of the problem, not just in an ego psychology, but in an individualistic Christianity geared 
to saving that individualistic God. Well, and yeah, and there's there's now the fatal flaw of all evangelicalism, and that is its buying into the romantic lie of the individual. And that gets it in the in the the familial, uh, you know. That well, what are we? Well, we are we are our relationships, right? And so, in that sense, and that's kind of where Hart he I think gets that part of it. But the part that it's not his, the universalism so much but it's his uh, approach to it. And I, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it because he does it in different ways. He approaches it from two different perspectives. But one of the perspectives is from creation ex nihilo, from an argument from formal cause, first cause. And I'm afraid that what we fall back into is then a kind of God's eye view point of understanding that I, I just don't think that, in other words, the whole apophaticism, he's very much a part of a, an Eastern Orthodox understanding. Well, actually, he's, he's not true to even Eastern Orthodoxy. <laughs> the focus then upon a kind of formal cause, a philosophical argument, takes us in a, in a place, you know, as you're describing Abba, Papa, that's a very different perspective and tone than I think we get in a kind of traditional theology. Sure it is, because when you know that, that the one that makes all things is your papa, like, like your papa, like your real papa, you know, like when you know that, when you're aware of that, that your loved circumstances are not a barometer of life. They just are what they are. That you're loved. You get to love. You, we get to love. We have the joy of loving. I mean, we, we human beings get to do this thing called love. It's amazing. It's stunning that we get to do this thing called love. And it, you know, and I, I just think, wow, this is what the Father has given us, is this lovely, lovely Jesus who models the life of the Father for us, and models us and our life back to the Father. It just, it, to me, the gospel has, has become nothing more than one great, big, wonderful, wonderful musical symphony. And I think Doug Campbell catch, captures the gospel, like I said, better than just about anybody out there on the planet right now. I uh, found his work transformative. I was really interested in it, and it, uh, it fit with my own my own focus, well, I guess that's what we all just have to say that, well, I traveled partway down that road and then realized, oh, there's other people on this road also. Oh, man, he sure saved us a lot of work, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're convinced by his reading of Romans one eighteen, the teacher speaking there? Yeah, I, I think it's, I, it, you know, it's not just Doug that has done that work, too. Stanley Stowers has done it. There are others that have, have observed these phenomenon. Doug, Doug just pressed it, and he pressed it. He pressed it hard enough that he had to come out and say, "Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to retract this a little bit." And he's retracted that particular piece of the thesis a little bit, not you not heavy, but a little bit enough to give his uh, interlocutors room to have a conversation because he really nailed that thing down tight, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that argument's I mean, one of the finest arguments I have ever seen as an argument goes. Holy cow, amazing. But I think that Campbell's argument holds water on so many levels. In particular, it's his framing of Paul that's so key to understanding Paul. And when I understood that, I realized Deliverance of God isn't his best and most important book. His best and most important book is the... Uh, one that he has done uh, on the chronology of Paul. That's the most important one. That he changes up, I guess, that we, we all read Paul through Lutheran eyes, that he is young Luther all over again. Yeah, there's that, there is that. But what Campbell does in particular in framing Paul is to simply use the epistles, not the book of Acts, to frame an epistolary biography. But second, he's able to show that the ten major Paulines were written uh, within about an 18 to 20 month space. And then that's it. And it's kind of amazing to to uh, 
to watch how he fleshes that out. In fact, I used to forever, I thought Ephesians was uh, non-Pauline, I mean, 40 years. And, and, and when I read Campbell, I was like, okay, oops, I'm convinced. It's Pauline. Now I could make sense of it. But it, it took that long, took reading Campbell. Well, run down. What, what would be the, the difference with the portrayal in Acts and what you're describing? The Paul of the book of Acts is a different type of figure than we see in uh, the epistles. Uh, the book of Acts, of course, being written much later. Uh, I date Acts with Joseph Tyson as late as 120. Uh, Paul is already being assimilated to Peter. Peter be, is being assimilated to Paul. Uh, Judaism and Christianity are beginning their, their battles at this point. Uh, there's Jewish Christian animosity, unfortunately, and supersessionist thinking going on. And, and that's, all, that's all reflected in the way that uh, Paul gets understood later. And then for us, how we end up reading Paul, sadly, through those same doggone sacrificial lenses. And that's missing in the epistles. That, man, when you, when you get into the epistles, the difference, for example, here's Campbell. How do you read First and Second Thessalonians? Man, those are crazy letters. You're reading like apocalyptic end time weird stuff, and then all of a sudden, like I mean, just like you came out of a Schofield Bible church, and then all of a sudden you get to Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. They're all very different. Uh-huh. You know, but there's and then the Pauline scholars go, oh well, we have to take all of Paul's letters into consideration and make Pauline theology. Well, here's the here's the crazy thing: you don't have to do that. You can recognize. Paul is invested heavily in the, the Jerusalem church way of reading things. That's where he gets his hermeneutic from. And he makes a break with that thinking between 41 when the Thessalonian letters are written and 48 when we have the evidence from Antioch. Paul has made a break. Well, now we can go examine what that break is by looking at the differences in the theology from 41 to the later period. Now everything gets exciting. Now we can go, oh, this is where Paul's breaking. Look at Paul's view of Torah in, the, in those early chapters, uh, our, our letters of the Thessalonians. Look at the mature view. Look at his eschatology is still very much First Enoch, uh, Second Temple. Uh, it, it, it still has a violent God. Paul still has a violent God in the Thessalonian letters. That's all changed by the time we get to the great letters. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to go. Oh, let's explore this change because maybe that's the same change we need to undergo. What you're depicting, a kind of understanding that there is a tension in Scripture that we can resolve through a hermeneutic of Christ. Okay. Yep. And we can apply this hermeneutic not simply in the tensions in Scripture, but in our own comprehension of reality. Yes. We only need one hermeneutic. Is that fair to as a kind of summation? Of your work? Yeah, I think so. I, I, in a way, I think so, yeah. I'm glad I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did it because I don't. <laughs> I just write this stuff. <laughs> hey, it's been fun. I'm glad we could. Uh, I'm glad we could have the conversation. Michael, it's been a wonderful conversation. I don't want to wear you out. We've been at it an hour. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you indeed. I've had a fun. All right. Cool, man. Peace and love and all good things. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate. 